Tonight we're looking at Article 18. It's a relatively uh, short article, and it's um, it's treated shortly by uh, by most uh, scholars. And I've I've um, I've tried to shrink this, so I did shrink it, so it fits onto one page. So it's a little bit small, but I trust that you can still still read it. Um, to begin tonight, because this is about the uh, salvation in the, the name of Jesus, I've, I've picked a hymn for us to begin with that was written by John Newton, the great, uh, the great Anglican preacher. And so we're going to say this together, and then we're going to say our, our, our short liturgy together, and then I'll open up in prayer. Article 18. Article 18. Now, we, we're actually ending the, the last section of articles on, on salvation and a justification, the, the way that we receive the grace of God. And we're moving on now into the section on the church, the authority of the church, the authority of councils, and the sacraments. So this is kind of the end of a section. And this article 18 of obtaining eternal salvation only by the name of Christ. We'll read it together. They also are to be had accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth, so that he be diligent to frame, which means here, uh, I think, as long as he be diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. For Holy Scripture doth set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. So those are accursed who say that as long as they have a law or a rule or a sect, a, a, a religious sect that they belong to, and they're diligent to follow that rule or as long as they're sincere. So the point here of the article is that not only do they have a rule or a code or a sect uh, to belong to, but that they are diligent with respect to that code. So as long as they have a code and they're sincere in following it, that they may be saved. And this article says if that's what's being said, then that person saying it is to be accursed. Um, and you'll see that the first point, this is the only anathema in all of our 39 articles, the only place that the word accursed appears. Now, if you hearken back to one of our first nights where we looked at the councils of Trent, there's lots of anathemas Accursed, accursed, he shall be accursed, he shall be accursed, who says that you shall be justified only by faith. Um, This is the only place that we find um, an anathema. I think it's interesting um, that the, the framers of the articles, this body of theology, this body of divinity, thinks that the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the uniqueness of the way to God is so important that that's the only place that they're going to apply uh, this this strong rebuke to anyone who might uh, gainsay what's being said by the unique the uniqueness of Christ. Number one, I think that's significant that the the exclusivity of the gospel, the exclusivity of Jesus, was very very important to these frame, the framers of this doctrine. And if it's important to the framers of this the, the, these articles. I have to think how much more should it be important to us <laughs> when you think about the day and the age in which we live in which the exclusivity of the gospel 
And the exclusivity of Jesus is so much challenged um, in every corner of society. One of the one of the um, the uh, the theologians who deals with the articles in the in the current day thinks that Article 18 is perhaps the most one of the most relevant doctrines for 21st century Christianity because of the way that uh, this notion of exclusivity is challenged. Where do we see where do we see the idea of the the exclusivity of the gospel challenged in today's society? What are some uh, examples of a of a um, direct challenge to that? Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Yes. What does Bernie Sanders say? Bernie Sanders says many things against Christianity, doesn't it? Christianity is the great uh, the great evil. But where do we see this idea of, of exclusivity of the gospel? No other way, right? This is, remember this, one way Jesus? This was the one way Jesus? It's just one way. Where do we see that notion today in our culture challenged? Well, yeah, I mean, where do we just find the idea of one-way challenge today? You do you, right. Tim has already said this idea of you do you to each his own, right? As long as, as, long as um, you know, if, if you're being sincere in your beliefs, who am I? It's like when you go back to Hamlet. Remember what Polonius says to Hamlet? His piece of advice, not to Hamlet, I should say, but to Laertes. Polonius says, uh, above all... To thine own self be true. And then it stands, you know, to reason that you can be false to no man. Something like that, paraphrased. That is, as long as you're true to your own ideals, and as long as you're sincere to yourself, everything will be fine. That's just kind of the common mantra today, isn't it, in, in today's society? To each his own. Live and let live. That's kind of the, the today's golden, golden rule. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that's kind of, that's kind of bled into contemporary Christian theology. In my father's house are many mansions. <laughs> Taken to me, there's, there's many ways to get to the father's house. Um, and so um, we need to take the exclusive claims of Jesus seriously. And it's not an easy thing to spell out, is it? If you've had, you know, Serena, if you've been at the university, it's one of the things that people take great umbrage to the idea that, well, what do you mean? That this is the only possible way to find salvation is in your tradition, is in your book, is in your church. Uh, what about the, the, the myriad of other expressions of faith? And we have to kind of firmly say on the authority of the gospel, a resounding no to those things. There's no other way. And that's a very difficult thing to do for us. Um, but it's important to them. It should be important to us. So the, we have this, I've written here, this, this idol of sincerity. Um, I was having a conversation not too long ago, about a year ago, with an elder at a church. And he said to me, well, if the, a person is sincere in his beliefs or her beliefs, who am I to say that they're not, they're not authentic, they're not true, as long as they're sincere? Um, and uh, that's, that's, that is a very real idol. Um, the, the other thing that's very significant here, I think, for us to think about tonight, with respect to the exclusive claims of Christianity and of Jesus, 
um, is how we are to relate to other beliefs. We know that we're to relate to them in the sense that in our kerygma, in our proclamation, we say, not your way, but ours. <laughs> I mean, when you just say that, it's very offensive. Not your way, but ours. We have to say it on, on Jesus' authority. But how do we relate to them? Is there any room, is there any place for interfaith dialogue? I'm just throwing this out here because it's connected. Um, what do we do? Let me, let me ask you a question. You invite your, your Muslim neighbor to church with you, and he goes, sure, I'll come to church with you if you come, if you come uh, to worship with me. What are you going to say to that? You come to mosque with me, and then next week I'll go to church with you. <laughs> they want to venture to, to, to put yourself in that role-playing situation? You have done that in the past. I definitely have. Even with like Jehovah Witnesses, like have like went to them, but like I didn't think about it this way, and especially the idea of like church and like the idea of a place of worship and like the reason like the more I'm learning about church, the more I'm like whoa, like thought of going to like a temple to worship like a Buddhist god. Okay. Like even going there for that purpose does not sound okay to me. So the Muslim says to you, "Why? Why should I go to church with you if you won't go to church with me?" What do you say to that person? Because I want you to meet the one true God. And he says, I want you to meet the one true Allah, he says. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to help you to think about these things. And, and how you're going to face uh, challenges in, in presenting the exclusivity of the gospel. Only the name of Jesus. I think this is a place for going with him. Uh, just not as a worshiper, but... To as an observer? Yeah, just observe and get to know them and as an evangelism. As, an, as a tool of, of evangelism? Yeah. yeah. A lot of temples won't let you go in. They like, require you to stand at the back if you are like, uh, another faith. Yeah. And much of their, their culture of uh, uh, um, uh, Middle Eastern culture is tied to, tied to faith. Um, Pardon me? Much of culture is tied to faith. Yes. Right, in just how we relate to, to, to culture. We, in order to relate culturally to someone, by, by um, necessity, you're kind of relating religiously to them, right? Um, um, so if someone says, you know, peace be upon you, <laughs> with their religious greeting, you know, do you just kind of shut them down and say, none of that peace, please. I'll have none of that. How do you do? I'm just, we, we, we are, we are uh, embedded with these people with other uh, religious faiths. And we have to be able to have some form of dialogue with them in order to make inroads. Do we see any biblical precedent for, for Christianity um, having uh, interaction with um, other faiths? Right. Paul where? Paul of Mars Hill, right? In the Areopagus. Paul is surrounded by idolatry. And he does make he does make uh, cultural common ground with them. He begins to quote their poets. He talks about their poets. 
he says, what does he say to them? You know, you're, 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 you're a bit too, uh, <laughs> you're a bit too religious here, <laughs> right? This unknown God that you have, just in case, right? Just in case there's a God we've forgotten, we're going to have an unknown God, lest he's offended. I'm going to tell you who the unknown God is. And he, he does make a cultural inroad to them to be able, but notice that Paul does preach the gospel to them. There's that saying, right, we're so busy building bridges that we never cross them. And I think it, it's, a, it's a good saying that the, it, biblically, biblically, yes, there are those moments where Paul is in the presence of other worshipers. Um, here there are philosophers, in this case particularly, but in the presence of idolatry. But he does preach the gospel to them. Um, and I think whatever we do with respect to our surrounding cultures and belief systems, that if we're just building bridges without saying the hard things that Paul says, because what else does Paul say there, right? God has been patient with your ignorance. The time of ignorance has now passed. The time of patience has run out. And God now what? He says to these uh, um, Areopagites. Remember what he says? Just for the judgment of God, isn't he? He begins to talk about the judgment of God. Yeah, God now commands all men to repent. For he set up, appointed what? A judge. He's appointed a judge. Um, so he begins to speak very hard words to this culture. Um, and I think it's significant that the result of that encounter with these Areopagites <laughs> is not altogether encouraging. There are a few, uh, Dennis and a couple others, um, but the, the most of them just laugh at Paul when they mention, he mentions the resurrection. Um, I do think that we need to be... Uh, able in our uh, exclusive adherence to the gospel and our adherence to the gospel's exclusivity, we must be able to have these relationships um, with, the, with interfaith um, or else we'll never get the gospel out. Okay, scriptural proof for the, doc- for the doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus. Acts 4.12. <clears throat> these are, this is the, the most uh, specific here, scriptural proof. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, the word here, name, and the same with the article, that we're saved by the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, do you think? When the article says we're saved by the name, is it an incant- it's not an incantation, obviously, right? We don't speak a charm. I do, think, I do think, brothers and sisters, that often in Christian circles, especially charismatic circles, we slip into the, we slip into the, um, the, the theology of the fetish and the, the amulet, right? We just, you, you can start to say these things as if it's a magic word. <laughs> you can start talking about the blood. I've heard people talk about the blood like it's a magic word. Plead the blood. I just plead the blood. I plead the blood over the city and I plead the blood. And, and it's like a, it's an amulet. I'm just saying a magic word. That's not what it's saying here. What does it mean by the name of Jesus? We're saved by the name of Christ. Means what do you think? His glory. His authority. What else? He is the word, right? He's the word. The word we call him is Jesus Christ. So I say that again, Andrew? He's the Word made flesh. Right? Yep. Um, so, if, if, if that, that word is Jesus Christ, right? Um, kind of just follows. I'm 
Yeah, no, I think what you're all getting at, it's, it's the, it's his, it relates to his person. When, when the article speaks about the name of Jesus, and when, when Peter here in Acts 4 um, speaks about the name of Jesus, it's referring to the totality of Christ and his personhood. Everything that he is and everything that he's done, everything that that name represents, in particular his death and his resurrection. Um, is the uh, is is what it means here? So his the totality of Christ's person, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and especially in view his atonement. Uh, the second text here be for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself for a, a ransom. Antilupton is the word that Paul uses here in First Timothy. This is the only time that uh, it's used in the New Testament. Uh, look, uh, look, um, Lutron, anti-Lutron, sorry, anti-Lutron. Um, I'd like you to meet my anti-Lutron. Anti-Lutron is um, used once here in First Timothy. Lutron is used elsewhere. Paul uses the, uh, the uh, preposition here, anti. Um, when you see anti, don't think of uh, against here, but think of an emphasis on exchange. Um, one for another. Uh, and so here, ransom is this idea of substitution, this idea of payment for the release of someone or something, uh, the idea of a gift offered here in Denny's words, uh, a gift offered to satisfy the avenger of blood for all. First uh, Timothy 2, 5, 6. There's only one mediator, one person between God and man. Calvin says that whenever we try to look at God outside of the mediator, it's utterly terrifying. Utterly terrifying. Whenever you look at God outside of the mediator, you, you, your hair stands up on end. That's, that's the reality of things. And it's always looking at God through Christ, or else it's just, it's just sheer terror. Um, Look at just, I've just written this here, it's just because we, we, these are some of the words that we bandy about often and we don't have a, a solid sense of them. The term ransom here. A ransom, this is from Denny's book, uh, The Death of Christ. A ransom is not wanted at all except where life has been forfeited. Humanity forfeited life. This is Christian uh, theology. Humanity is forfeited life. Um, and the meaning of the sentence unambiguously is that the forfeited lives of many... Here he's referring to Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Um, are liberated by the surrender of Christ's life and that to surrender his life um, is to do, the, to do them this incalculable service was the very soul of his calling. That's what Christ came to do. The so, I love that phrase, the very soul of his calling was to do them this incalculable service. Well, what's that? It's his ransom. Because we had forfeited our lives. And everything that has the, the least connotation of life was forfeited by us. We were just given to death. Uh, we were a culture of death. And in many cases, we still are a culture of death, uh, at least around us in this world. C, thirdly, uh, the third, these are just a few. There are many scriptural proofs. Uh, the third one, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. It's very kind of black and white here, isn't it? It's just a clear dichotomy. You have those who believe in Jesus, 
they have eternal life. Anyone who does not obey the Son. Now, do you know? Do you, do you see how um, John has has interchanged those two words, faith and obey? The obedience of the gospel. This is a phrase that we we um, we see in the New Testament. It's the obedience of the gospel. Our call to to um, obey is, is via faith in Jesus. Um, so some clear scriptural proofs there that Jesus is the only way to peace with God and to eternal life. Many others present. Um, the, the, the next uh, associated thing here is the idea of the impossibility of salvation through law. The, the article now talks about law or sect. Um, and when it says here by the law here, it's not simply referring to the Mosaic law. It's referring to any kind of code that we might drum up, whether it's a, a, a Mormon code or a Jehovah's Witness code um, or um, a just a virtuous code, I'll be, I'll be good and moral, anything like that. Um, but the article does take up the idea, I think, the connected idea of the impossibility of salvation through the law. And this is something that we just need to, to consider tonight together. Um, though, on the one hand, it's kind of basic, it's good to remind ourselves of these things. Um, Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the knowledge, or since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. This is what the, the, the law does. The, the, the law exposes our, our depravity. The law exposes our wickedness and our inability. So I've, I've written here, the law reveals God's straightness, his rectitude, and it reveals humanity's crookedness. This is what it does. The law never, ever reveals human faithfulness except in the man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law. That's what he did. He fulfilled it. It reveals Christ's righteousness. It will never, ever reveal ours. And so any attempt that we ever make to um, use the law as a mirror to reflect our righteousness will always be a lie because the law will always just show deformity in us um, and nothing else. Paul says in Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? That is, what kind of law are we justified? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now again, as I mentioned on Sunday, the law of faith is a, a law that God instituted that whoever believes in my son will be justified. That's the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from, uh, apart from works of the law. Romans 3. And then thirdly, for Christ is the end. Now here in Greek, word, the word is telos. He's, he's, the, he's the fulfillment it's where the law was headed all along was to, to demonstrate Christ and to reveal Christ. He's the, he's the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Christ, the, the, um, the promise of the law, what, what, are the, what are the two things that the law said? If you, if you do this, you shall what? Do this and live. Don't do it and die. Right. Christ did it, and he obtains the promise. He obtains the life. He obtains the righteousness. That's given to us now. It's, it's, it's granted to us. He's the end of the law, the talus of the law. We aren't. Romans 
Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you try to justify yourselves by the law, then, then Christ's cross was pointless. So now, um, look at what, this is E. Harold Brown. He was an old, an old commentator in the articles. He says, if the law of Moses could not justify, a law which did come from God, much less can we believe that any other creed of man's device could be safe for any to abide in. <laughs> if God's law couldn't do it, if we couldn't, and this came from God, then what about all those stuff that humans are creating? My own creed, my own kind of virtue that I just kind of make up in my head, you know, as many, many people do. Um, much less are we safe, are we safe there. Uh, I think that's a great, a great line. So if the law of God can't justify us, then neither can any other human law justify us. Um, and there are many, many out there. Now, the, the article, um, finally tonight, it brings, into our, brings to our attention the question of those who don't hear. And I just want to spend a little bit of time with this. Um, if salvation is only through the name of Jesus, what about the thousands and thousands of years of people who lived in South America, who lived in North America, who lived in Asia and various parts of the world, who have never, let's just, you know, just the last 2,000 years alone, people who are outside of the, the, uh, the compass of Christian evangelistic activity. What do we say about these people? How do we give an answer for those who have a question? Well, if salvation can only come if I hear the name of Jesus and pitch my faith on the righteousness of Christ and on his death and on his resurrection... What about those who who don't um, who have never heard? What is the common answer that you you would give to someone? The common answer. What would? Well, you would be John. What kind of answer might you give someone? What happened to you know the uh, to the uh, Samoans you know a thousand years ago before the advent of, of missions in that area of the world? They probably died without knowing the name of Christ. Well, they evidently died without knowing the name of Jesus. Yeah. What do we say about these people? The what would you say? Let's let's run a subway ride. I'm an unbeliever. And I, you say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I go to Christ Church. There's no subway here, but the... the uh, and I say, well, okay, what about the people who... Salvation is only through the name of Jesus. What about those who died a thousand years ago, never had a chance to hear the gospel? What would you say to them? Well, I would quote what you've written down. I would quote Romans 1. Okay, Romans 1. <laughs> yeah. So what would you, and what would you say, Josh? In short, without without quoting it. Yeah, without without. Well, I would say that there's there's a portion of the Bible where that we believe it's part of the scriptures where Paul wrote this letter to a group of people in Rome, and what he told them was that God has created this world with enough evidence to show Himself to even those who do not believe. Right. Okay. And so your answer would be in short. No, 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 no. <laughs> 
that that's as short as I can make it, right? So hopefully we're not to our destination on the subway again. So that's that's what I would say. Okay. Anyone else want to pick up on what on what Josh has mentioned? Well, let's let's take a look at the scripture and and let's um, let's see if we can wrap our minds around what Paul is saying. If salvation is only through the name of Jesus, what about those who never hear the gospel? Who can read Romans 1, 18 to 25 for us? Just stop there, Andrew. What, what does Paul mean by that when he says that they suppress the truth? That they know that God exists. They know it, right? They know the truth, and they willfully suppress it. So this is not about the ignorant heathen. There is, there is no one ignorant of God in Paul's theology. Everybody knows it, and every human soul suppresses it. That's, the, that's Paul's theology. Right there. So, okay, Andrew, let's keep, keep reading. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Hmm. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave, gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Hmm. Therefore God gave them over in, the, in their sinful desires to, of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Amen. So did you notice the, the, the sweeping quality of Paul's, uh, Paul's verdict towards the unbelievers here? There's, it's, it's wide. It's sweeping. They know God. They've seen His attributes, His power, His, divine, that his divinity. It's been clear to them. And every one of them, it says, they love the creature rather than the Creator. That's the essence of sin. Sin is always creation over creator. It's, it's, um, um, it's to bring God down. This is what Thomas Goodwin says, that the fun- fundamental defect is low thoughts of God. It's always bringing God down, and really sin is, is sickened at the thought of God. Sin, is, sin is, becomes nauseous at the thought of God. Um, Now, um, Romans 2, uh, uh, just following through Paul's line of thought here, Romans 2, 6 to 10. Who can read that for us tonight? We will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, 
the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This can be a really confusing verse, can't it? Can someone tell me how you can be led astray by reading Romans 2, 6 to 11? You see that? If you do good, you'll be saved. If you don't do good, you'll be damned. But look here, look, look at that little... Uh, um, um, Six eleven, that are written there. Yeah, glory, honor, and immortality. And look at two there. For those who, by patience in well doing, seek for glory, and honor in immortality. Turn back to to, uh, to Romans one sixteen, and you get there what the what this is all about. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the obedience here that he's talking about. This is the, the seeking for glory, honor, and immortality is the salvation that he's talking about in verse 16, which only comes via the gospel. So it's very easy to kind of um, to, to uh, uh, twist that around. Romans 2, 12 to 16. Can someone read that for us? This is the most, uh, I think, um, debated scripture with respect to those who haven't heard the name of Jesus. Romans 2, 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Hmm. Okay, now who, who, who wants to... Tell me here what's a difficulty in this passage. Okay, everyone does have the law, right? According to you, it's all it's on everyone's heart. This is this idea. The doers of the law will be justified. Isn't that isn't that troublesome? It's not hearers of the law who are just, but doers of the law are justified. Wait a second, Paul. You've just said that no man shall be justified by the law. So that can't be what Paul means here, right? That anybody is, that the Gentiles who do the works of the law will be somehow let off the hook because they've done what's written on their hearts. That's not what Paul is saying here. What his point is here between 12 and 16 is that the law judges everybody. It's on everybody's heart. They know what they should do. And yet they don't do it. How do we know that they don't do it? Someone please read Romans 3.11 for, for us. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one righteous, no not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks God. Let's just keep reading that. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. That is um, the, the life of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now just continue on. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped. And the what part of the world? Three quarters of the world? The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being, not even one, will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law only reveals human deformity. That passage there must absolutely interpret Romans 2, 12 to uh, 16. 12 to 16 cannot be saying there are the virtuous pagans who obeyed the law. They've been doing it from the heart and God will judge them in a different way. They're going to be saved by their doings of the law. That's utterly impossible according to Paul's theology. For there's no one righteous, no, not one. Because then missionaries are spreading destruction. Pardon me? Uh, then missionaries are just spreading destruction, right? Because they better leave them, better leave the virtuous pagan alone, not tell them. Well, right, yeah. Well, yeah, and it, it, kind of, it, it kind of throws into question the whole missionary enterprise, doesn't it? Why, why go and, and bury your life in some, in some third world country? If they don't really need the gospel after all, if they're just they're gonna they're just fine after all. Um, look at what the I love the book of homilies. I'm glad for them. I'm glad we have them as a church. This is I likely Cranmer who wrote this. He says, "If a heathen man clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and do such other like works, yet because he doth them not in faith." For the honor and love of God, they be but dead, vain, and fruitless works to him. Faith is that doth commend the work to God, faith in Christ. For St. Augustine saith, whether thou wilt or not, that work which cometh not of faith is nothing. Where the faith of Christ is not the foundation, there is no good work. What building soever we make. Where faith in Christ isn't all that we are, are fixed on. Uh, all of our works are utterly vain, uh, the homily says. So, in view of this theology, we, we just have no reason to believe that any pagan, heathen, unbeliever, can be saved by obeying the law in their hearts, which is something that I've heard in many quadrants of uh, theological circles. We can't believe that. We have no scriptural warrant to believe that. Can, can we have any hope for the pagan? Joan says yes. Okay, Joan, take the floor. <laughs> okay. Um, just from um, my own reading, um, I did read a testimony of a woman who was Muslim. She lived in uh, Iraq. Right. She had no 
contact with Christians at all. Um, an angel appeared to her and preached the gospel to her, and she believed, and um, she endured a lot of persecution, and she also communicated her faith to others. Right. So, yes. where does that fit in? <laughs> That's someone who's heard the gospel and has obeyed the gospel, has, has, has put their faith in Christ via the gospel. Um, and so in that case, uh, an, an angel is tantamount to a, a, a human preacher. It's just another creature announcing glad tidings. And, and we, we have no reason to not believe that, that you know, God can choose to work in those ways if he wants to. Um, and you know, we've, I think many of us have heard those kinds of stories. Um, so yes, in that case, but it's Christ. And it's Christ's gospel, and it's Christ's person, and it's Christ's name that leads to, that leads to the salvation. And so that would fit in with this article. Uh, uh, perfectly. The point is that wherever salvation, if salvation occurs outside of the compass of Christian evangel, of church evangelism, if it happens, and in most cases these are anecdotal cases, right? We they're they're just anecdotes that we've heard, and they're not necessarily untrue. But if it happens, it has to be the name of Christ. There is salvation in no other name under heaven or earth. But Jesus, um, uh, he alone can, um, can bring that to pass. So if there are any Samoans or Hawaiians or Asians or Africans or whatever outside of the, the extension of the Christian church who will be in eternity, it's through the merits and the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus that somehow... His benefits have been applied to them in ways that we might not be able to comprehend. Um, but but we we have no um, we can't um, we can't say that for certain, can we? We don't know. We just don't know. We all that we know is those who put their faith in Jesus can be saved. This is a shorter article tonight, but are there any questions about, about the lesson tonight or about the doctrine or any uh, connected ideas that you'd like to, to bring to light tonight? What did Lewis think? You know, at the, in the last battle, at the end? The yeah. Soldier. Yeah, so do you know what Chris is talking about? At the end of the last battle, there's, a, there's um, the god Tash. He is the... Um, He's the. <laughs> he, he, there's a kind of a in Tolkien and Lewis, I hate to say it, but there's there's a kind of a, a kind of Anglo-Saxon, uh, Eurocentric kind of white principle going on. So that the swarthy people are always the bad ones. Uh, so in Tolkien and the the Easterlings are the, the swarthy people, and uh, um, in in Lewis's uh, the planet Narnia is a country, the the land of Kalarman are the swarthy people. They're the dark ones. And they're the, they're the bad people. Um, but at the end of the last battle, the god that they serve is Tash. Now, Tash is an ugly god. Tash has a, is like a bird with a great big beak. And they sacrifice to Tash. He's a, he's a bloodthirsty god. Um, not for the sake of salvation, but just because he thirsts for violence. He's a violent god. And they serve him with, with fear. Um, and... Uh, at the end of the book, to make it short, there's a young man by the name of Emmet. Emmet is Hebrew for truth, and um, Emmet is a seeker of a seeker of God. 
He's always been a seeker of God in his heart. He's wanted God. And at the very end, uh, and I, I don't know, it, it, I'm just, it's a touching story. I grew up with a story. But at the very end, um, uh, Emmett is wandering around looking for Tash. And Tash has been defeated. He's looking for Tash and he can't find him. And Aslan, he meets Aslan. And he's, he repents. And he says, all my life I've served Tash. He says, no, you've been seeking for me. He says. Now, George MacDonald was a universalist. George MacDonald thought that everyone's going to be saved in the end. And uh, th- that's just not scriptural. It's just not scriptural. It's a nice thought. Who wouldn't want to think that? Who wouldn't want to hope that? Like Bart says, you're an ass if you don't hope for that. But we don't have any scriptural warrant for that. The Bible gives us no guarantee. In fact, this is the very opposite. That there are many who will go into the broad way. They will be destroyed with everlasting burnings. Judgment of God, the fire that was made for the devil. It says that. Um, MacDonald was a universalist, and so Lewis, he just leans that way. And he wants to cherish this idea that, that someone can be seeking for what they think is this, but it's actually not that, it's Christ in the end. It was Christ they've been seeking all along. Um, I think, again, it's, it's, it's a touching moment, but biblically, Lewis, I think, is kind of on shaky ground there. Um, can we say that maybe there's a there's just this little hope that that's in 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 these kind of um, pagan circles that Christ by his victorious suffering and resurrection would apply his merits to some soul in an unreached land and and call him elect him make him his own that's a speculation but it's it's nice to think about but it's speculation we have to leave it in, in the realm of speculation. I think. Any other thoughts or, or there, there are many applications here to your lives. It's hard to, to say to people, only Jesus. He's the only way. There's, you know, the Muslims are wrong. The Sikhs are wrong. The, um, you know, whatever tradition it is, it is wrong. It's very difficult to say that. Have you found yourself in a situation where you've had to enunciate that to someone and it'd been very difficult for you? I was at a, some of you were there, I was at a, at a for the university, a panel, a religious panel, and, and there was a Muslim on this side and a Sikh on this side. Well, he's an atheist right here, actually. Uh, and a Sikh. And they asked me the question, you know, can, can Christianity and um, Islam, can they coincide with each other? And I said, well, on one hand, yes, we have to coincide with each other because they're our brothers. Humanly, we're, we're knit together. We're human beings. And we have to love our neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Right? The Pharisee asks Jesus. Well, it's not who you think it is. It's the guy who's, who's the neighbor in the gospel. This is interesting, isn't it? Who's the neighbor? Samaritan. Samaritan. What do the Samaritans believe? What did the Samaritans believe? Did they believe in Yahweh? No, it was it was, it was uh, syncretistic. It was Yahweh plus Yahweh and the other gods, Yahweh and all this other syncretism that went on. And Jesus now takes his whole lesson about loving your neighbor and he, he applies it to the Samaritan that we're to love and we're to cherish and we're to bind up. So on the one hand, yes, we must get along with these other religions. And I think there's a big challenge there in how Jesus asks us to, to um, have interfaith uh, dialogue. 
Um, but I said, on the other hand, no, we can't coincide because there's only one way to be saved, and it's only in the name of Jesus. So somehow, as Christians, we have to balance that balancing act of loving the Samaritan, being charitable to, charitable to them, binding up their wounds, taking care of them, and saying, you're utterly wrong. Like, they're not even close. Like, there's not like some religions are closer than the others. Paul's doctrine in 1, 2, 3 is that they're utterly wrong. They've suppressed the truth, all of them. They've just buried it. And they do not want God to be God. And so somehow, lovingly, in the power of the Spirit, we have to love them and yet say to them, like, you are utterly wrong in the doctrine, in the belief that you're espousing. And it's very difficult to do that. It's, it's challenging. I think apart from the Holy Spirit, we just we can't do it. Um, and we need, we need great grace. I think it took the, the apostles' great um, boldness, obviously, to tell the Jews that they were wrong. They were just wrong. There's only one way to be saved. But it is, Paul says, it's the power of God. That's the thing. The exclusivity of the gospel is part of its power. So when we start announcing a gospel that says, oh, there are many ways, or we kind of soften its edges, when we soften the gospel's edges, I think the gospel loses its power. The, the, the enunciation, the proclamation of the gospel loses its power when we, when we blunt it and we soften it in those ways. Um, I, I just want to be very uh, transparent here that I, I find it very hard to say to my relatives who aren't saved and to my close friends, like, you're utterly wrong in what you believe. <laughs> that morality that you espouse, it, it's completely worthless. My goodness. That's exactly what Paul was saying to the Jews. The morality that you're espousing, that you think is saving you, it is utterly worthless. And I think at that point when we are, and again, boy, we have to be able to say that with with Christ's spirit upon us or else it's going (laughs) to come across completely wrong. Only by the spirit are we able to say something like that. But that is the gospel. It's one way Jesus um, I said it to a professor once in my, in my university days as my sociology prof I went to her office and um, uh, she, she started talking and I, I just said I, I, I told her about Jesus and I said you know he said you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free <laughs> and man did I get a terribly venomous response from her um, Others have been have been more gentle, but we have to um, we have to brace for that. I think in our culture. I think what's hard is that like we see the authority of Christ, and we kind of like walk under that. So if we were like ambassadors of like a king of Canada, let's say, yeah, then we could like go out and say like the king says this, like, right? This but yeah. because people like have blocked God from their minds and Christ's authority from their minds entirely, we're like walking with this like. It feels like like a blank authority to them. Right. They're like, who are you? Right? Yeah. That's, it's, hard, it's hard to like grasp the, like yeah. actually you have the authority to say this. Right. To these people. Yeah. Conversation. And to be able to hold on to that, to be able to like find the boldness to mm-hmm. yeah. proclaim what the king has told you. It's very good. That's a very helpful thought. Yeah, and we, we are like those, um, the, 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 the trumpeteers announcing it. The, the, the reign of the king. The king has come. He set up his reign. 
now and it and the kingdom is coming too um and um this is what he says to you the gospel is command as well as as well as promise right the gospel says come the gospel also says come the king beckons you to come to him um and those two things yeah so that that does it's the authority of the king that's a good thought any other uh, thoughts about the the idea of the of the uniqueness of Jesus, the the exclusivity of Jesus in our culture? I wanted to make a comment on the Acts four twelve. Yes. Like, For there is no other name. Um, I I appreciate that you went through the totality of Christ. As yeah. Part, because the Jehovah Witnesses would use that as like we believe that Jesus, like that yeah. through Jesus we would be saved, but they don't believe. In the power and no. dignity of Jesus. No. So they don't believe in the totality. Yeah, that's very good, yeah. Are Mormons saved, brothers and sisters? Are Mormons Christians? Why aren't Mormons Christians? Their idea of Jesus is completely incorrect. Yeah. It's, it's a whole other thing. It's a whole other it's, thing. It's not even, nothing about their... Yeah. Structure is at all they don't believe in the name of Jesus right if they don't believe in the name of Jesus and all that he is they're not Christians uh, no matter what they do no matter how good their choir sounds in Salt Lake City wherever it is um, they they're not just so you know Mormons believe that Jesus uh, that the father was a human at one point he was a creature became a god Jesus same kind of progress and we're on that same kind of progress we are going to become gods like the father is um it's not the gospel because only the god man could suffer in our place um and and pay that debt that ransom that um we read about tonight Hmm. any other thoughts tonight Good question. Yeah. Well, I, I I would want to sit down with one of them, and I would want to ask them, can you? Um, um, are you justified just by Jesus Christ, or are you justified by Jesus and? It's just a little word, right? And that throws the whole gospel into into utter collapse. Jesus and. This is the problem with the Galatians, right? It was always Jesus and, the gospel and, Jesus and circumcision. You got, Jesus is great, but you also have to be circumcised to be justified. Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. So if it's Jesus and no tobacco, Jesus and no coffee, Jesus and no wine. Do they not dance? So in that case, Joe and I would want to sit down and ask them what, what because if 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 they're um, if they're pitching their faith on Jesus and something else for justification, then according to this, according to this article, um, uh, they're in a bad bad place. Yeah, it's just Jesus. It's just His name for salvation. Um, but yeah, the seventh days are a curious bunch. We're just thinking about the driving of the church tonight. Um, um, and I, the other issue there is that it's not—it's it's the word and too. It's not just Jesus and, but it's the word and. 
It's the word end, Ellen G. White. All that she has to say. Um, and we have to be careful about that. Uh, all those various traditions that where it's the word end, something else. It's the word end. Um, we can't add to scripture. What about the Roman Catholics? We won't go there tonight. We'll yes. give our <laughs> we won't go there tonight. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you tonight for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he gave himself as a ransom for us. We thank you that he um, fulfilled all righteousness and he paid the, the penalty that the law had laid against us, which was everlasting condemnation and death, and that he took it upon himself and he paid the debt and now we are free. And we say to you tonight, O oh God, that we have no other confidence but in Jesus, no other hope but in Jesus, that he alone is the way and the truth, and he alone is our life. And so help us and give us grace evermore to fix our eyes on Jesus. And may his name and may his work, may his death and resurrection, may all that he is and the totality of his person become increasingly precious to all of us tonight, Lord, and help us to always remember him and to remember his name where when the enemy comes against us, help us to remember the name of Jesus and to look to the name of Jesus. When doubts, Lord, assail us, help us to look to the name of Jesus. We pray that he would become more and more precious to us in every way. And uh, Lord, deliver us from our timidity Deliver us, Lord, from our, our, um, uh, our inabilities, Lord. Give us power and boldness, even as you gave to your apostles, to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in all of its exclusivity, and to be able to offer to the nations the only hope that they have in a Savior, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.